What up, what up, Meepsters? This is Ryan Rainbro, and if you're hearing this, that means you're about to listen to one of the 99 free episodes of the Meep Meep podcast available wherever you cast pods. But keep in mind that there are new and unreleased episodes of the show on patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. So you'll want to sign up there to hear future episodes and also other side projects like Choo Choo, the show about soundtracks and contribute suggestions for future episodes as well. Will I listen to your suggestion? <laughs> There's only one way to find out. Patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. Bye! Certain drugs depress the brain and central nervous system. These depressants can slow the body and mind down and have a hypnotic effect, most commonly found in the form of multicolored capsules that can treat disorders like anxiety or tension. Depressants, or downers, create a sense of euphoria and relaxation. But tolerance develops quickly and eventually an overdose can occur, leading to self-destruction or even death. In 2001, Roadrunner Records released their first and only of the band Downer, their euphoria of the signing was quickly depressed as the tumultuous creation and stunted release of this record ran through the tolerance of its members, which ultimately led to self-destruction and the end of their existence. But not before leaving their mark with a ferocious collection of well-crafted rock songs fueled by hardcore ethos and a subtle new bounce. This week on Meep Meep, the 20th anniversary of the 2001 self-titled album, Downer. Welcome to Meet Meet, the Roadrunner podcast, where we go through the albums of Roadrunner Records with the artists who made them and the musicians they influenced. Let's roll! What up, what up, Meepsters? April 24th, 2001. A big day for Roadrunner Records and therefore the world, as the Big Bird would release three albums that day, all celebrating 20th anniversaries this year. Arizona's rap-rockin' veterans dislocated styles with their album Pin the Tail on the Honky, the return of established juggernauts Fear Factory and their release Digimortal, and the subject of today's episode, the self-titled full-length by Downer. The story of how this record was made is absolutely fascinating and never a dull moment. Band mastermind and industry mainstay Aaron Silverman takes us through the history of the band, which starts in the 90s Southern California hardcore scene. The interesting thing to me about Downer, I mean, there's lots of interesting things, but the biggest glaring thing that when I first think about this band is that you and John specifically, but I'm sure other members of the band are clearly earlier on in the late 80s, 90s, like rooted in hardcore. Yes. And Downer, I would say, is, you know, not a hardcore band. So it's interesting to me, the trajectory. John was in a band called Head First, um, and they were based out of the, uh, all those guys. And they've all went on to do other awesome bands. Kevin Murphy, who played drums in the band, went on to be guitar player for Farside, um, which was very cool. He did a couple other amazing bands. He was in Four on One. Um, with Dana Mahoney. Uh, both of our bands, which connect back to Dana Mahoney, were on Workshed Records. I was in a band called Mission Impossible. Um, so we, a lot of Irvine weird roots and hardcore kind of stemmed from there, from the Orange County scene. And then a fellow, like basically the fifth member of, of Head First, 
this guy Drew Trollson, who worked at a record store called uh, Zed Records and did a fanzine called Reignition and did a, a little side label called uh, Jester. He suggested John and I get together after both of our bands kind of disbanded. Head first, Kevin, like I said, went on to do Far Side and then Four and One. Mike and Aaron, which was the guitar player and bass player for Head First, went on to do a band called Smile. They ended up being signed to Atlantic Records. But um, he suggested we, John and I do something and we clicked immediately. We already knew each other. He was from Woodbridge High. I was from Uni High. Again, the Workshed connection. So it just all kind of came together pretty quickly. It was very cool. And again, like you said, being part of the hardcore scene. It was kind of a step forward for us. It was the early 90s, and we were starting to get into the whole quote-unquote grunge thing. But then other things like suicidal tendencies and other, you know, kind of post-metal punk things we got were, were very influential on us as well. You know, when we did Downer, we decided we were going to do something. We were going to drop tune, which is a little bit different than, you know, standard hardcore, so to speak. Again, just heavily listening to like the Soundgarden's Alice in Chains of the World. We kind of just ran with that. And, um, you know, 10 years later, uh, we made the record for uh, Roadrunner. <laughs> well, so before that, you know, years before the Roadrunner record, you put out Wrestling with Jesus. I know you had some like other seven inches and stuff like that, too. But at that time, are you still, because you guys are coming from hardcore, are you playing with hardcore bands? Absolutely. Um, our first show, which was very random, was uh, with The Offspring um, in Norco, California. The day of the show, it got moved. There was maybe 10 people there, which is weird to think when you're talking about a band like The Offspring and Black Spot, another band that was coincidentally on Workshed Records, a band called Triggerman, which... Uh, the guitar player for that band did the artwork for our album, Wrestling with Jesus. Gavin Oglesby, very talented guy, did artwork for Sensefield and a band called Drown that was on a major label, which had Blasco, which was in Zombie. And there's a lot of our world is connects to a bunch of random things. So being around like the Hayworth, Mark and Rob and they did um, Hard Stance, then Inside Out came from that, which, you know, was one of the coolest hardcore bands of all time. Then obviously Zach went on to do Rage Against the Machine, um, which is one of the biggest rock bands of the 90s, uh, if not one of the biggest rock bands in the world. And it was surreal to be around that and all in real time, just to see that naturally progress. You knew these guys were insanely talented. Um mind-blowing stage presence, uh, top-level songwriting and musicianship, um, and just you could feel there was something special going on. And so being around that, you naturally kind of fed off that. Um, that scene, I've always said, when it ever comes up in any conversation, there'll never be anything like that. Everyone really had each other's backs. Everyone kind of had a function in the scene. So if you went to a show... You were selling fanzines or you were selling records or you're taking pictures or you were writing record reviews or, you know, you weren't just a fan of the music. There was some way you were part. You were helping the bands uh, promote shows. You were create making flyers like it was a very surreal um, thing to look back at because everyone participated in not just going to the shows, but were actually active in the marketing. You have all these random uh, musical elements, but they they work together really well. In their own right, they were their own little festivals every week, you know. So it was very very cool to grow up around that. Um, I feel incredibly lucky. 
a generation later is really my scene with it where hardcore and what would later go on to be called new metal are coagulated and kind of the same thing. And at the time, I don't know that there's any difference. You know, I'm seeing Papa Roach with hardcore bands. Um, Absolutely. Um, when I first saw Throwdown, you know, I didn't know that they were a hardcore band. It sounded like all the other stuff I liked at the same time. So sure. Downer, of course, kind of uh, later in those years, especially the Roadrunner era, is more in that scene. So between 97 and 01, though, when Wrestling With Jesus and Self-Titled comes out, that's really when New Metal's blowing up. You got Cold Chamber, Human Waste Project, all that. So how did you guys fit into that side of the scene? It was, uh, you know, again, a very strange progression. We had kind of chose to go non-hardcore format, but we still had that passion element. Um, we were lucky the gentleman who put out our record, this guy, David Satani, also known as Igby, worked at the same record store Drew did, who I mentioned earlier, called Zed. He had kind of taken over booking a lot of South- Southern California shows from Big Frank, who was about as iconic and as important as a person in the Southern California scene can get. We are this random band that kind of did but didn't fit on some of these bills. Around 1997, we'd just done a tour with Earth Crisis and Ignite. Again, total kind of almost odd man out. I'm sure kids were like, who are these clowns? But we, you know, we came from that world to the 80s hardcore that we absolutely love and worship. And John and I will love till the end of time. And then you had Earth Crisis, who was obviously the new wave of hardcore. And like you said, they kind of cross over into a world where it's like, as a person who has never been exposed to that world, is this a, what's a hardcore band? This is more of like a metal or post hardcore band. They're definitely hardcore. You know, let's, there's no mistaking that. And, and a remarkable guys, they couldn't have been the nicer people to us. They had no reason to open their arms and treat us like family. And they absolutely did. Carl's one of the coolest dudes ever. The, all the guys were remarkably just not just great musicians and, and songwriters and and legendary band but just beyond cool beyond anything i could have imagined probably top five funnest times of my life was touring with those guys and getting out of that we came home we did wrestling with jesus and again this kind of removed us even further from that world and igby the guy who put out the record was this one person that kind of kept us attached to that by putting us on shows with the victory bands and bands of that nature um but like you mentioned we started going into hollywood and playing with human waste project and cold chamber and we rehearsed in huntington beach of all places this place called underground chicken sound and oddly enough the band we shared the space with was corn and so uh, we saw corn from when they moved, they kind of did the same thing from there. They came from Bakersfield, they moved down to Southern California. They had something very unique going on, obviously. Um, anybody who went to those early shows, again, talking back to like the rage stuff and the inside out stuff, you just knew there was something magical going on. And they kind of did the same thing. I think their first tour was with Sick of It All and Orange Nine Millimeter, if I remember correctly, or one of their first bigger tours. And I was like, oh, they're going to be that weird band that fits in with that, but is going to go way much further than those other bands. And I love Orange Nine and all those bands and Quicksand and bands like that. But Korn obviously just had that extra magic, you know, and um, we were very lucky to, to have been around them. It was very influential for us. 
whenever they played with anybody from that that world, they just fucking decimated them. So it was one of those things where you didn't really want to play with them. But then again, there were bands like Deftones we played with a handful of times very early on. And um, you look, you again, you could see there was something special going on. It was like this other type of LA scene where, you know, obviously Deftones are from Sacramento, Corns from Bakersfield, but they were considered kind of LAS bands because they would come down there and showcase. And obviously that's what took them to the next level. I mean, I remember Madonna going to see the Deftones and signing the band, you know, so uh, I've been very blessed to have seen a lot of surreal things in the music world across my lifetime. And I know every scene has their kind of special things and, and aspects of it. So I'm not trying to say that it's better or worse than anything else, but as far as, you know, when I was younger growing up in, well, in Pomona, but, you know, I would go to yeah uh, the showcase and of course chain reaction and things like that for shows and uh, Jerry's pizza, which was all the way up in Bakersfield. I just felt like I was a part of something that still a part of my life to this day that we're talking about it right now, you know? So I always thought that that was cool. You know, people have problems with the whole new metal universe. It seems like people are kind of circling back and realizing, um, Hey, it's not, you know, this shitty genre or whatever, where it's like watered down and overproduced. There's some really good things. And there's things that didn't really hold up. Um, But uh, that's any scene or genre. And like going back to what you said, like that whole chain reaction, that was kind of like almost like a third coming of hardcore and punk and indie because it was Orange County. You had this crazy dynamic of bills. You know, I remember going to like Dillinger escape plan there and them almost burning the building down. And it was, you know, again, it just had that magic of you're like, oh, my God, this is something really unique and special. And I do hope that the music and everything circles back to that, because I feel like in the last decade or so, it's really started to kind of get further and further away from that. Kind of similar to how a couple of years ago, uh, pop punk and hardcore kind of merged because the guys making pop punk bands were coming from hardcore. So they kind of had yeah. that respect from their peers, but the music wasn't necessarily the same. It sounds like kind of the similar thing. You guys were hardcore guys who still had that respect and integrity from that scene, but doing something a little bit more modern rock. Yes. Bingo. Absolutely. So the first full length is wrestling with Jesus. Uh, yep. You know, Downer has the songs Savior and Born Again. You got Wrestling with Jesus. So is there wrestling because you're into wrestling or Jesus because you're into Jesus? First off, I was very lucky. My dad, you know, growing up, he let us stay up late, me and my brother. And I'd watch WWF on, you know, I forgot what channel it was on, but it was on really late at night and they would broadcast, you know, these cage matches with Snuka versus Bob Backlund and, um, you know, you would see Andre the Giant, which for, as a kid, you're like, oh, my God, who is this freaking monster? And, uh, it, you know, and every and then you get then the Hulk Hogan's of the world and Iron Sheiks and Sergeant Slaughter's started coming in. And I started getting older with it. And it was really as much as skateboarding or punk rock or or anything, really that really was kind of a part of the backbone of who I was. I was, I really was into it. I, wa- I remember watching the first couple of WrestleManias, like uh, going to the forum or, or Anaheim convention center. I can't remember my dad, I was pretty young and my father taking me and my brother and we'd watch this stuff. I mean, I, I some of the craziest moments were going to Anaheim convention center and going and seeing Nikolai Volkov and, 
Iron Sheik, like the whole place went fucking ape shit and was throwing all their food and toys and objects at them. And like people were like trying to like get over the barricades. I mean, and that's how um, fanatic people were. So being, you know, kind of going back like to that hardcore world, you, you get, you feed off that energy, that passion. But um, going back to the question about wrestling with Jesus, you know, John had come up with the title and this before it even, he almost finished, finish the sentence talking about the record and m- bringing up the title i was like done like i was like that's that's the title of our album you know like i took that as you know it was fun and it tied back to what i loved as a kid with the whole music aspect and wrestling and everything so it was kind of like a perfect thing for my quote unquote first album to participate on for john it was a little bit different uh, you know obviously the religious aspect was a big part of that. It was kind of like, um, you know, hey, religion is supposed to be this unifying, beautiful experience for people and love, and you're supposed to follow all these guidelines and everything. But then on the flip side, you have all this crazy war and tension and division. So you are technically, if you are religious, you are in theory wrestling with that aspect. Am, am I supposed to be so spiritual and be so super into this? And it's about love and equality and all these things. But on the flip side, everyone's mad at each other. And my God's better than your God. And my, you know, this, my, you know, this is the, this is the way you're supposed to live your life. And this is the structure and guidelines you should follow, you know, and coincidentally straight edge kind of fell into that weird territory where, you know, at first it was a song by Minor Threat. Then in the mid 80s, it was kind of like this theme that kids grabbed onto and identified with and uh, was a really neat thing. It wasn't just like, all the, I don't know, I'm straight edge. You were already straight edge. You know, when you're 15, 14, 15, 16, 17 years old, you're not fucking doing cocaine or getting drunk and stuff. You're already naturally there, but the whole positivity and scene and uh unity aspect and friendship you know um having each other's back and you know it was just a cool thing to be part of you know it just naturally goes this is what i want to do this is fun we were bringing in the quote-unquote jocks and surfers and skaters and other people that weren't part of the world as soon as you took them to a show i want that people were sold you know they're like i want in on this i have a good couple dozen of friends we would tag along and they were never part of that network and then as soon as they went to spankies or fenders or country club for the first time or toe jams they were like i'm going to every show they put all their chips in that basket so it was you know um cool to see that you know it did bring so many people together and was fascinating and then as it kind of went on in the late 80s early 90s it's you know there's so many different things started coming into it which i get the whole vegetarian thing and then vegan became a big part of it um krishna in some weird form kind of got attached to it in weird ways um you know then the militant side you know which kind of go kind of stems back to like the earth crisis of the world so you know that's kind of john was johnson interpretation mine was more it's fun you know and and when we talked to Gavin Oglesby, he had already had a piece of artwork that kind of naturally went with it and the packaging and everything. So it just seemed like a perfect fit. You're a band for a significant period of time before you get signed to Roadrunner. Yep. You know, uh, 
four years between wrestling with Jesus and self-titled, that's, you know, a pretty significant length of time. So how does that come to be? How does, I know Mike Gitter is who ends up signing you to Roadrunner. So did you already have a relationship with him through the hardcore scene? Yeah, uh, it's a weird, that's a kind of a weird story. So kind of backpedal a little bit, put out wrestling with Jesus. I'm shopping the band, you know, Hey, sending out to labels and meeting people branching back to some of the things I mentioned earlier. Um, I'm sending this wrestling with Jesus CDs out to every label, every in our person trying to network as much as possible. Obviously uh, I was living in Los Angeles. We just done the tour with uh, earth crisis and ignite. We came back and we're doing a lot of these shows that were all over the board, really kind of getting away from the whole hardcore thing and really kind of focusing on that LA nightlife scene so to speak coconut teaser and whiskey and roxy and not doing more of the orange county type of things really kind of just becoming an la band unfortunately um and john hated that part you know john i mean i, I mean you could probably go back to him and talk to me he never really liked going to la i lived up there that was my life i had my girlfriend at the time i was you know had various jobs there and that was kind of where my life was progressing but um so I was shopping the wrestling with Jesus. I ended up, my parents of all people go, you should be asking people for jobs while you're shopping. And which is the light bulb, great idea. Send the CD gets to this woman, Cindy Hartman, who is still friends with this day, sent it to her, her boss, Kevin Williamson had signed smile, which was the guys from head first. Ironically, I sent her the downer album. This guy who produced the head first record for Atlantic was the guy who produced wrestling with Jesus. So I already have, these weird ties back to smile to these people. They don't even know me, but we have all these things in common, so to speak. Cindy, I mentioned to her, hey, you guys hiring? She actually got me a job in the mailroom in Atlantic Records. So now I'm more, you know, it's like the dream. You know, I'm in a band and I'm working for a major label in 1997, which is pre-internet, you know, streaming and pre-iTunes and pre-iPods and iPhones and all those things. So whole different world. And I mean, this is when bands are selling millions and millions of records, a whole different universe to what is going on now. And so she got me a job in the mailroom, absolute coolest experience of my life, um, was working there. Mike was an A&R guy for Atlantic Records and signed Bad Religion, Jawbox, which is one of my favorite bands ever. I started chatting with him along with all the other A&R people and other people networking through the thing. You know, he got wrestling with Jesus said prior to that. So he kind of knew of us and he knew head first and Mission Impossible because obviously he had his ties back to uniform choice. But so me and Mike became pretty close. Uh, they're not super close, as close as we've gotten, but we we're starting to talk and discuss things. And the band kept forging forward. We we're playing like North by Northwest and all these little we played foundations for him and this Edom Festival and all these different things. And we were kind of generating our own buzz outside of that. And we had gotten a demo deal with Warner Brothers reprise of all labels. And this guy, David Kahn, who produced Sugar Ray and a bunch of other very successful records, gave us the demo deal. We went into A&M, which was an incredible experience with this guy, Lee Popa. Uh, he was a sound guy for Ministry and produced this band called The Funk Junkies and a bunch of other stuff over the years. We got, I met Lee 
through our bass player at the time, who eventually Lee's manager became basically my lifelong best friend from that point. This guy, Matt Roberts, who ran another label and was managing various people and stuff. And so naturally, Lee, I was a biggest fan of ministry. And so when I heard he worked with ministry, Psalm 69 and all that stuff, and was their sound guy, I remember going to Lollapalooza too and having my eyes pop out of my head going, this is like one of the greatest musical experiences I've ever seen. And I'd already seen all the hardcore and everything else happen. So for ministry to take that to a whole nother dimension and watch the corns and all these other things, that was, I knew there was something special and I got to give Lee a ton of credit because he's a very stubborn dude, um, but very talented to guy. And he knows what he wants out of people and he knows what he hears and he can obviously identify talent. And he came in and we did, we sat and we did, we, we knew we wanted to record with them. So we went to A&M, we did uh, three songs that ended up being on the down the road runner record, uh, punching bag, born again, and weed eater. Uh, the punching bag, no exaggeration, is is got to be in my top two or three favorite, if not my favorite, down recording ever. I don't think John's ever sounded better. I don't think my guitars have ever sounded better. Um, it's just a monster. You know, it's an absolute insane. And the thing is, when we were doing it, and, and Lee knew what he was doing, he knew that David and Reprise were going to despise it. They were, <laughs> it was just, it was just going to be too heavy and too not what they wanted us to do. And which was fine because we also were like, we're going to be on, like, if were we really downer going to be on reprise Warner Brothers? That just didn't, like, I thought it was fascinating and incredible. But at the same time, I was like, this just doesn't seem like a natural fit. So we, we were like, cool, we'll be able to make the dream demo AM records. Who wouldn't want to go do that? So we went and did that, did that with Lee you know, sent that immediately to everyone uh, that wasn't in reprise and Warner because we knew we'd get some some love and Mike thought it was fantastic and a couple other people were starting to generate a lot of interest with. And uh, that's kind of what led us to getting signed to uh, Roadrunner. I think it kind of scared Mike a little bit, maybe. I don't know exactly, but it was like, oh, well, this band's going to get signed to someone. They just, you know, did this for one reprise, you know, who's going to come up and snatch him. And at that time, you know, new metal was becoming a pretty solid genre. And that whole L.A. scene, you know, you had all these bands that were blowing up. And then once we got signed, Lee was supposed to produce the record, you know, and we started rehearsing and um, things were going well. And then in typical, from what I understand, Lee Popa fashion just started getting into it, the label and pushing buttons and infuriating everyone and got himself fired. In retrospect, I honestly do wish he would have done, wish he would have done the record. The first song we wrote, because Punching Bag, Born Again, and Weed Eater were already written before Lee was kind of, he just kind of sprinkled his magic in the studio on it, showed us what he was capable of. And we were like, sold. And so we went to the rehearsal room first time after signing the deal with Roadrunner, going, having our own lockout, you know, this totally changed everything for us. And uh, that night we came up with Last Time. which was the single off of the album. And I remember leaving the practice and hearing the demo made and going, oh my God. You know, I was like, oh my God, this is going, we're, this is it. 
like, holy shit, this is going to happen. Um, and it all went downhill. <laughs> I, I got to say, I, there was a second where I was like, oh my God, this is insane. This is going in a place I never dreamed of, you know, and we were already accomplishing our dreams. We're on Roadrunner Records. Are you kidding me? And Mike Gitter signed us who signed all these fantastic bands and he had Glassjaw at the time and uh, he just did a Sepultura record and all this stuff and obviously the Atlantic stuff. So it was like, oh my God, this is like a storybook, you know, type of stuff. You know, it was really like, wow, all this uh, pain and suffering we went through was paying off. So that's interesting to me, a couple things that you mentioned. Number one, Punching Bag to me is the most new metal song on the whole album. So the fact that that's, one of the first three is very interesting to me because I would have thought that would have come as you're oh, doing it. Okay. Mainly just because that beginning part where it has the guitar layering, it kind of has those rhythms. And then, in all fairness, with how much John has that Maynard sounding voice, mm -hmm. I think that on top of like the bouncy rhythm kind of makes it okay. newish. Secondly, so Lee Popa, you say, kind of starts off, he's going to be the producer. I know that Bob Marlett ends up being the producer yep. and Bill Kennedy also yep. has some production. And you even mentioned to me that machine was going to produce at one point. Yes. Yes. All um, four of them are somewhat, especially at this time, machine mm -hmm. of course goes on to do a ton of things, but are very much like industrial band producers. Yeah, for sure. So was that a deliberate choice you were looking for? So when Lee was out of the picture, it was like, okay, what are we going to do? And obviously we couldn't get someone like Dave Jordan or someone who'd done record like an Allison Chains. Like we just didn't have money for something like that. And um, we were, and I had been religiously listening to the pitch shifter, www.pitchshifter. That was just something I'd been listening to a lot and thought was really cool and unique. And I was like, God, this machine guy, he's got some cool stuff going on. And, and, I was like, this guy could probably be really good. And, and we were talking to him and he, we, would, we were, the plan was to go to New Jersey and stay with him. And once Lee was out of the picture, our bass player left, you know, cause he was really upset. He was tight with Lee and was like, well, fuck Roadrunner and fuck you guys. And it was like, okay. Um, and at that point we had like 300 bass players, you know, already in and out of the band, like no exaggeration. And the guy who played drums on that recording at reprise and was we wanted part of the band but he wasn't going to be signed was my friend glenn who worked with me at atlantic records and he was doing a couple other bands and that's where his heart was he was really into those other bands and he only did this stuff is because i asked him the drummer from wrestling with jesus decided to go not play drums or do something at the time which sucks because he's one of my lifelong best friends what we did we ended up getting our the drummer from wrestling with jesus is like drum protege like a uh, guy that he looked up to this guy tracy and guy's phenomenal used to playing in like reggae bands and stuff in orange county and just a really great backbone and was like come and jam with us he naturally kind of learned he he played the wrestling with jesus stuff great he already knew us because he knew john the drummer from that record and we were playing and it just seemed like a good fit. And he was, he already had gear and was totally pro and used to touring and everything. So we gave him some money and was like, cool, you'll be a member of the band. We're just going to do our thing and do this record and see where it goes. Where um, at that point it was like, I kind of was like, well, we're signed. We're trying to negotiate the thing with machine. And it just, you know, again, it was one of those stupid things where, you know, you think that points and money and all these things were going to be, 
like it just it's just nothing at the end of the day at the end of the day who cares who get like i hate to say it like especially what ended up what happened to us it was irrelevant to sit there like arguing with the machine of like we were we did wrestling with jesus in a night okay so we went in the studio we were used to making a record quickly and then we took so long like you said there was a four years in between there's countless demos and all this stuff and we need to get something out we have all these songs we are dying to have a new record out. We want to tour. We want to do all these things. And we we're kind of in this weird limbo, even though we were signed, we bring Bobby and Tony in and we're off to the races again. And, you know, uh, it was really cool. And I felt bad for those guys because it kind of stopped 16 for a minute and they are trying to help us. And um, Tony stayed with the band the machine thing totally fell through because he wanted all the money that we, if we did the record as quick as we thought we were going to do, because uh, we were used to making the record at night, he wanted to keep all the money. And it was a lot of money. And I was like, no fucking way you're going to keep all the money. If we do this in the night, you know, or two weeks, I'm not going to let you keep 30 or $40,000. Like we want that money or we want the money. We don't want to recoup, have to recoup all that. So then we ended up having a falling out with machine. I was hanging out with Bill Kennedy one night in the studio. He was mixing some songs for the Sepultura record that Mike was working on. And it sounded amazing. And so we go end up going to a studio in the Valley because we kind of were rushing at that point. We've been signed. We're kind of waiting to do the record, putting it off. We go start recording the record and we're like a month into it and we don't really have much done. And, you know, everyone's getting really frustrated. We haven't even started really tracking guitars and it just seemed like we are aimlessly doing something that we were totally prepared for. I had demoed the entire album, so it made zero sense that we weren't already done or much further along. We hadn't even started vocals. So I was furious with Bill Kennedy. I know, and I'm sure John wanted to kill him. I end up stealing the hard drive. I end up going into the into the studio stealing the hard drive and towing road and towing roadrunner guess who's got all the music and everything me and, and and i'm like you're firing bill and we're not doing this record with this guy and we're going to go back to orange county with the guy who did wrestling with jesus and the smile record we're going to finish this in a week or two and fuck this guy and fuck this place and fuck spending all this money we've wasted ten thousand dollars or whatever it was at that point and we were just livid and so roadrunner's like you're going to go to jail <laughs> <laughs> And then I have Mike and my friend Jamie Roberts, who's like a publicist. Like, you have to get that hard drive back to the studio. Like, does it have other people's records on it? I I don't know what's on it. I I just remember getting dropped off from my friend Evan, me going in through the back door, going in because I knew Bill was like asleep on the couch or whatever, going to the Mac. 9600 or whatever it was detaching the scuzzy drive (laughs) and leaving with it and then going i have it now and then it's creating you know that that everything just went on a free fall at that point because we were like we don't want to record with this guy Uh, i guess this isn't going to happen we're going to get dropped is what i'm thinking you know like we are totally doomed and the thing that's weird is Bill's been attached to some great things. So I, I don't know, maybe he was going through a weird phase in his life. 
maybe he was on a lot of drugs that we weren't aware of. It was just a really weird scenario. So then the company somehow negotiates with Bill, you're getting out of the studio, you're going to your house, and you're going to get this finished at your house, which was a, a terrible idea. But we obviously wanted to finish our record. So we go to Bill's. At this point, we're now another month or so in. He can't get vocals out of John if his life depended on it. And it was a really ghetto like situation, for lack of a better word. He just had John doing vocals in a garage, and it was completely uninspiring. Bill was just like aimlessly wandering around his place, like Gollum and from Lord of the Rings, like this weird lost creature. He was not focused on our record at all. He could care less. It almost seems like he could care less what happened to the record, especially since I had stolen the hard drive. So we couldn't get any vocal performances from John. I totally understand John's side. He's getting incredibly frustrated. He's driving up from Orange County to deep Burbank every day. We hated the way the songs were turning out. It was just very dry and bland. Didn't have any of the passion wrestling with Jesus had. And we're like, Mike, like I'll fucking fly you out here. Get your ass out here and see, like, this isn't like, I didn't steal the hard drive. We're not creating this havoc for, you know, fun. This is like a nightmare for us. You know, I had my truck repossessed. I've been sitting there for 90 days going, this is never going to be released. This is like, this is absolute doom for us. And Mike came out and Mike realized the second he was there, he was like, oh, Jesus Christ, you know? And he was trying to be like this mediator between Bill and John and me. And there's this guy who was engineering it, was like so high on Ritalin or speed or something. Like you could tell he had been up for like weeks and was like hallucinating. It was really bad. And um, I, I forgot what the final straw was, but... I had spoken to uh, Bob Marlette, who you mentioned, and was like, dude, we need, like, I know you have a studio at home. Real, Really, this was the only person to save it at this point. We couldn't go back to machine, and obviously Lee Popo was out of the picture. So Bob agreed to do it on very strange terms. I'm sure it wasn't the most favorable thing for him, but he had just put out this live record, which was getting a lot of success and he, he really did save the day. He was doing the Iomi record at that time, which was really cool with all the different singers. And he was doing like an Alice Cooper record. And so we were like, well, this guy can obviously save this if anyone can. And so I want to scrap everything we did outside of the drums. We literally started all over, just kept the drums that we did with Bill after three, three and a half months of production. I went in called Tony, who was the guy from 16. He came back up and redid all the bass like in a night or two. And again, just shows you how productive we are in the right environment. I did all the guitars in a night or two. So within the week, we already had the record completely tracked. Uh, Bob got some great vocal stuff out of John and, you know, fast forward and we got the record done and it came out. Um, I was shocked, to be honest. With you. I was totally shocked. I never, I was really at a point where I was like, this record's not getting finished. You know, I, I thank God that Bob got involved. I really do. And looking back, he definitely pushed me too. like as a guitarist, 
we were kind of one dimensional and just kind of sludgy and and he really pushed me to branch out and he really got me to you know push me to be a better musician which was real that's what i got out of that so there was some some great obviously having the record come out and having it finished and sound as good as it does i listened to it the other day i'm very very happy with the way that turned out for a long time i was very bitter and never listened to it and I listened to it yesterday, actually, because we're going to do a vinyl release of it. And I was like, wow, this sounds pretty thick, actually. And Bob did a fantastic job and and John sounds super strong. Well, yeah, that's uh, something that I think is such a triumph of the album, not only from what you're saying that it even exists, but just that uh, it doesn't sound like it's a hodgepodge of, you know, recording sessions. It sounds very yeah, fluid God. and mastered and mixed up. Uh, as one one unit, it all sounds like the same album. You know what I mean? And yeah. Sometimes you hear records and they sound like compilations. Yes. And w- it was, up until that point, that's where it was headed. We were punk hardcore guys. We don't want to do that. We want to just lay it down and move, you know? Um, we expected to have that record done in a week or two. So then it becomes defeating after each week, you're going, wow, we're really getting nowhere. And I, I hated the guitar stuff we were doing and hated it was so stiff and one dimensional. And I have somewhere some of those recordings, you know, um, and it's just night and day. It's frightening. So the layout for the album you, you mm-hmm. put together. And of course, the artwork is done by Pusshead, who's legendary yep. in not only the music world, but the, the skating world as well. And how did uh, you get pus to do the uh the artwork well uh getting brian involved was actually kind of pegs back to bobby and tony from 16 uh he had put out the curves that kick record for them on his label on bacteria sour and he had put out a, a handful if not a dozen um 16 singles over the years i think prior to that some just absolutely epic mind-blowing stuff and obviously we are a huge fan in metallica rush i mean the guy's done stuff for everyone as you mentioned um bands like attitude adjustment and just so much punk history and then metal history you know it's funny and it kind of going back to we the i don't know if you've ever seen the packaging for wrestling with jesus it's really incredible and this guy gavin oglesby who i mentioned he was in a band called no for an answer and and we were gonna have him do the package and then i Blasco uh, from Zombie and Ozzy was in a band called Drown and they were signed to Geffen and they saw the packaging and were like, dude, we want that guy to do our package. And I was like, cool, I'm going to hook Gavin up. He's going to be able to do a major label package. Like that's kind of a big deal, you know, Um, and he's going to get paid. And he went on to like paint, like basically identical paintings from the wrestling with Jesus package for the drown package. So it was like, Oh man, that, that was really lousy. You know, <laughs> like you have, you're so talented and you're the, so creative. And then you're going to just kind of mimic what you did for us, Tony and Bobby. Hey man, we want, you know, let's get Brian to do this. You know, he, he would crush this. And uh, they made the introduction. I remember going up to San Francisco and sitting down with them. And the guy is such a fascinating, creative human being. Uh, One of the most amazing people I've ever sat around and just talked to. He's just so focused and has such a great vision. And um, he knows what he's talking about. Talk about legendary people. That dude is, is there. He's no joke by any stretch of anyone's imagination. So it was like naturally like, yes, 
do exactly what we're taught you're talking about. I'm not going to even kind of try to influence what you want to do. Go with it. So then he gave us some of the elements and we were blown away. My girlfriend at the time, who's an incredible uh, graphic designer, she put together like three or four different packages uh, of the layout. Her discussions with Brian Pusset, and I was like, choose which one you want. And I guess Roadrunner, <laughs> I laugh, goes, you can't have a skeleton on the cover of the record. And it was like, like, what? You're Roadrunner. We can't have a skeleton on the cover of our record. Like, and the funny thing is El Nino, I think, just put out a record <laughs> with a skeleton on the cover. So it was like, what? And so I wasn't privy to this. I was in Europe and cut myself off from the world for a couple of weeks. And they're blowing up John. And I'm sure John was already like, I'm done with this shit. <laughs> and they hired some graphic designer and came up with what is now the cover, which is the, which is fine. You know, at first, honestly, I was so angry that I, I was going to quit the band. Like I literally was like, you know what? I like, it was one of those spinal tap things. Like you're like, this is the cover. Like when they get the black cover, it's like none more black. We're desecrating Brian Pusshead's artwork. And that's not what his intent, like that's, he's going to freak the fuck out when he sees that. And so Everyone calm me down. Mike is always a great dude. You know, I had some great friends there. So Mike Gitter, obviously, the guy who signed us, was always kind of like the voice of reason and always talked to me and or John off a cliff. Then I had another friend, great friend, two great friends, Maria Gonzalez and Jamie Roberts. Jamie specifically were always like kind of mentoring us and kind of coaching us through this because a lot of this was new to us. said was pretty bummed, but it was like, what are we going to do? <laughs> You know, like, we're not going to, at this point, we've gone through so much, we're not going to break up over an album cover. That would have been ridiculous. So um, that's how the packaging came out. I don't even know how that font came to be because Puss had created this really cool alphabet for us and font. And obviously that didn't make the record. So very confusing. The whole thing was a very strange experience. You know, you, you think... Uh, you work your whole life to get signed to a major label and then you're, you know, working with all these talented people and all this stuff. And literally it seemed like every single step of the way, once Lee left the picture was like a massive struggle, but we knew that the album did turn out great. Um, or at least we were happy with the outcome. And um, we kind of just were like, we need to, to go to the next phase and start touring and supporting this and we did have the support of like the radio department they were convinced last time was going to do really well at radio and they did generate some good buzz with that um we got to play a, a music festival a radio festival out in new mexico with stained and Rammstein. it was one of the craziest days of my life in or out of a band literally one of the most insane days of my life period in the best of ways so Things uh, started to progressively get better. So is this bug like a part of what you and Puss had talk about at all, or they just generate that on their own? Yeah, the bug. So he had done a thing, I think, for a band called Coco Bat. And I was like, man, I really like all these insecty things you're doing, you know? And um, he and he had said in the meeting, he's like, when I think of Downer, I think of drugs. And we weren't necessarily a, a drug band, but he was like, He's like, I'm thinking of a pill, like a pill creature, or pill something. We're like, cool, go with it. And in theory, if you look at it, it is a pill. And technically, it's powder. 
you know so when you're looking at it it's basically the pill opened up and making the bug for a lack of a better description um but uh he had done that and that was really going to be more of the focus of the back cover and the cd artwork and stuff where the cover was supposed to be the skeleton which is inside of the pill bug which i'm not really sure where they put those elements together so the album comes out you yep. got the the cover is confirmed where <laughs> we're doing yep. interviews we're doing radio festivals you of course like you mentioned last time goes to radio and you yep. get to film a video for it which is actually I mean, I know you're on Roadrunner, but not every Roadrunner band, whether they get a single or not, get a video. So that's somewhat of a, a confidence they have in you. They're willing to put yes. that. It has this kind of poltergeist look to it where the okay. person's touch it. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. And you're wearing suits, which, as you know, heels wear suits. So obviously you're the bad guys in this uh, music video. But can you tell me a little bit about that? So obviously the album's done. They're digging last time. It was funny, too, because the song Born Again is the song that, in theory, got us signed. Um, they really, when they signed us, they really thought that song had a, a ton of potential. They had put it on a spring sampler in 1999 before we even had signed our deal. There was like this sampler with like seeds, little seed packet on it, some spring, summer 1999 sampler. And they put the demo version on there, even though they probably shouldn't have because it was... Technically, Warner reprise this property, but um, they put it on there and they were like, that song's gold. We love it. We're going to push the hell out of that. Then we did the record. They loved Last Time, which I do think Last Time's definitely the, was the right way to go. We had the managers of all people, uh, the management of Nickelback at the time. And this guy, John Greenberg and Brian, uh, you know, we had been working with them on and off for like five years like we would just go run hot and cold with them and we never signed anything formally with them or anything and um i was always technically the manager of the band for better or worse and i had sent at the time i was living above these guys who end up being the people who produced and created robot chicken okay yeah you know like little stop motion thing oh yeah I'm I'm, Seth green Yes, Seth Green. So Seth, I live in this on Melrose in an office that's no one's supposed to live in. I'm living upstairs in this place. Below is the robot chicken people, which they're called Shadow Machine. And then the office next to me is Seth Green's office. These guys are creating that. They're this up and coming company. They're all collaborating together. And they come up with the idea, hey, we want to come down to rehearsal and film some test footage you guys playing they loved us and they're like what's uh, we're gonna pick us what's do last time's label likes song last time so they come down to our rehearsal place and shoot some really wild test footage they set up some lights and some backdrops and really made something out of nothing they really did we were in this tiny little room and and they somehow pulled this thing off and edited together obviously incredibly talented uh, guys and they sent it to Roadrunner. I'm like, hey, reach out to this person at Roadrunner. Jamie and Mike saw it. They're like, wow, that's really cool. Then they forward it to the powers that be, and they're like, oh wow, we want you to finish this. This is really really neat. And um, so I went back to Brian and John, the managers, and was like, hey, Roadrunner, want you know, like you said, Roadrunner doesn't necessarily let bands make videos and whatnot or give them a budget to do that. And they're like basically like you're fucking high 
They're like, you're, they're not going to give you any money to do that. And I was like, um, they are actually. <laughs> and this, these guys, Shadow Machine, basically have it approved. And I just need you to formally do it since you're Nickelback's manager. I don't want to be the one middlemanning it. You're, you know, like Nickelback was obviously picking up steam and you're supposed to be representing us. And I was told by everyone to step back and just be the guitar player and songwriter of the band. Stop being the business guy. So they're, they're, they're like, they were insistent that that was not happening. I don't know why they chose to go that route with this, but I, it infuriated me, you know, and I'd already been at wit's end with everything. So I'm like, fuck you guys. We had to fire them or they quit or I can't remember exactly what happened. So it was like, cool. And they gave us a budget. We sat down and they, we locked out a, a soundstage for an afternoon. And at that point, it was like, well, we have one shot to do this. You know, we knew what happened with the whole recording process and stuff. We're like, let's, what do we want to do? You know, do we want to look like every band on the planet and t shirts and baggy jeans and be the typical new metal band, so to speak? Or do we want to kind of create our own little identity and stuff? And John and I have always liked nice clothes and stuff. We're like, let's fucking wear suits. You know, like let's put on suits. And it's not like that was the first time I think like Shudder to Think and maybe Jawbox and some other bands have been doing that in the past. We're like, we're going to wear suits and look really good and have an image for once. And um, that's kind of how that happened. And they gave us a budget to get suits. And we went up to whatever suit discount place was on Hollywood Boulevard and bought all of us a suit. And actually, that's when John Dahlgren, the guy who played on Wrestling with Jesus, he came back into the band. Um, and he's the drummer in that video and Tony and Bobby ended up leaving just because the record ended up taking so freaking long. We, we didn't know. I mean, we started the record in early 2000. So we'd been sitting around for a while. Is this record still going to even come out regardless of how decent it came out? And so they went on to go back and do, to do 16 and Jed uh, Hathaway, who ended up being the bass player for the last stretch of the band, was tied back into the Robot Chicken Shadow Machine guys. He was one of the stop motion animators. So he was like total fan. Had seen that followed the band for the last couple of years, knew it what we've been through. And was like, dude, I will go buy a brand new rig, do whatever it takes. He was naturally a guitar player. He's like, I'll put on headphones. He's like, I know you're ready to jump off a cliff. I'm not going to drive you crazy. I'm going to go learn everything. You're going to show me a couple things and we're going to blow this fucking band up. And to his credit, he did. He learned everything and bought super pro gear and magically turned himself into a great bass player for us. And um, he got, you know, he, if anyone got to reap the benefits of the band, it was really him because he joined the band like two weeks later, we go on tour with Alien Ant Farm and Hubu Stank, who wasn't even, didn't even have a record out yet. Um, and then we do a music video and all these great things, you know, we're doing press and photo shoots and doing all the things that people dream of. Um, so, you know, props to him. That's cool. He got to have that experience. I, hopefully he's grateful. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was like that little section of time. It seemed like everything was really coming together. Very cool. That's very interesting too, that, you know, all those things kind of went up. The robot chicken thing, of course, isn't probably what it is now back in 2000, 2001. Yeah, so totally. you're on the ground floor of that. And yeah. Flex and by Furious are also kind of on a lot of compilations and things like that. So yep. is there ever a consideration to try to do like a second single, even maybe not a second music video, but send mm -hmm. another song to radio since they're kind of sending it to those soundtracks and things like you that? You know, um, last time, whenever 
they sent it to CMJ for ads. Uh, I don't know if it was last time or the down record in general, but we ended up being the number one most added the first week. And we were most added at active and most added at alternative or something, which was totally crazy. I mean, I have the issue and still look at it and go, wow, that really happened. And that was one of those things that we were kind of riding the coattails of, of like, we're number one most added at CMJ. And again, it was one of those things that was like, oh, well, this is what you guys do. Um, I'm not going to tell you what to push at radio or, or market or try to, to, uh, get people into the band. We did, you know, we knew when we did uh, last time, I think I had mentioned earlier, that was the first song we did when we were officially signed and got into a lockout and had Lee involved when we were mixing it. And I remember like Mike was really, really concerned at that point for obvious reasons. And we were in A&M mixing the record and, we, I was like, you, you don't like flex, man? Like, really? You don't like flex? Like, we want that to open the record. Like, that came out really fucking cool. And he's like, I'm not hearing it. And then I remember we went upstairs and we played it for him. And he's like, what the fuck is this? And we're like, this is flex. And he's like, that's not what I was sent. Like, he was like, almost like floored. Like, holy shit, wait a second. This isn't as big of a mess as I thought it was. In the middle of mixing our record, and them realizing, oh, this does sound great. Bob did a great job. They decide Bob is going to mix a Boiler Room, test mix a Boiler Room song. So we stop our mix all together in the middle of mixing the album, which was already so traumatic. So he could test mix Boiler Room <laughs> in, in the middle of mixing our record. So we stop in our tracks and are like, you know, oh God, we are so not a priority if we're stopping our mix and they're doing a Boiler Room mix in the middle of our sessions. And then Boiler Room doesn't even come out on Roadrunner. Um, so again, you know, it's it's funny how all these things kind of work out. But then after that, it was like, oh God, no, we need to go back to the original intention, Born Again and Last Time. And they went back and spent a day just mixing those two songs. We actually had Tony from 16, even though he wasn't really necessarily in the band anymore, come back in and retrack the bass um, because we were at AM and had access to like the best preamps and, and stuff in the world. So it was like, hey, we have these two songs. Just come in. You're going to do this in an hour and get it the hell out of here. And that was also fascinating, too, because it was like, the songs were basically mixed and it was like, cool, we just want to do the bass to give it some more um, from roundness. Well, by furious particularly has some really cool, you know, multiple guitar parts too, which I'm mm -hmm. sure was interesting for you as a, yes. a guitarist, you know, just being the only guitarist you're recording those, but it has those cool dynamics that really give it a lot of layers. Cause it has the clean guitar kind of mm -hmm. underneath the, the distortion. So is that Bob Marlette's influence or you already have that yeah. stuff? Oh, yeah. Um, if I, I want to find it, the original demo, that song is total helmet, like Mean Time Era, where it's just that bass line and drum groove. And then the guitars are coming in and out of it, kind of that industrial thing we were talking about earlier. So that's why we were talking about machines and the Lee Popas and everybody, because it was almost it was like helmet, Godflesh, industrial-esque, where Bob was like, going back to what I mentioned earlier, too, where he started hey dude make you like james addiction and you like you know a lot of this like atmospheric stuff and allison chains you need to be 
focusing on creating that other element of your plane and opening like opening up to that type of stuff and um, I never used pedals ever it was either just straight clean or straight dirty out of my rectifier and that's how it was and I remember I'd always did love the TC electronic stereo course flanger and I was like well I do own this one pedal and he was like that's actually perfect and I remember being at Bob's and Bob's like we're going to really push you. Like, I don't even care. Like we're, you're going to figure out how to, you know, push yourself and play these really more like counterparts to the more macho stuff going on, so to speak, for lack of a better word. And um, like, God bless them. You know, again, that song took on a whole new life and is arguably my favorite song period across our career. Yeah. That song is awesome. Especially that it's almost like a buildup at the end, even though it's actually coming down you know it's such yeah. a cool dynamic to it yeah yeah and and again like that whole ending that poor friend a lifetime of suffering with the little guitar dreamer thing um was not even close to sounding like that that just took on a whole new life when bob when bob entered the picture that song in particular is like if you like the way that song is i wish we could have had just done the record with him from the get-go the whole record would have had that type of you know dynamics um and that really is the song that he pushed me the most on you mentioned you know that you and john are essentially the band from the yeah. beginning to the end you have other awesome people involved in it but you two are the the two main people that are involved in the songs and of course john's vocals are a big part of what make the band sound like the band mm-hmm. but how much do you think it affected you for better or for worse that you're coming out he sounds very maynard like there's bands like like pulse ultra and chevelle and earshot that are all coming around at the same time Mm -hmm. do you think that that helped you guys get pushed because that's kind of a popular sound or do you think it hurt that people were like that's the first thing they thought of i you know we heard two different things we definitely heard the maynard thing obviously um and we heard dexter too which later on and listening to record the other day i kind of hear some of those offspring kind of things um i, I do not <laughs> I, I had never heard it everyone's like dexter or or maynard um but when i was listening to it yesterday i was like oh okay there's a couple shouty things that kind of have the, those elements and i could see why people mentioned that um it was a, i'm sure for john it drove him nuts for me it was confusing because you have a thing where um, and this isn't an insult to any band, but if you have an El Nino and they sound like Sepultura or Soulfly, or if you have a um, Deftones that's kind of an HR Bad Brains or these different singers that kind of have their influences or whatever. And I don't want to say, you know, John did like Tool, no question, but let's be honest, John was singing in bands and sounded like John in 1987. So for 1997 2001 people go oh you sound like this guy well john sounds like john so i don't know necessarily if that was fair for everyone to go oh you sound like maynard but i don't think it did us good because um we immediately immediately were pegged as like a tool cover band or uh, sounding like oh you're trying to sound like tool and musically i don't think we're sound anything like them except for maybe a couple spots and then as far as the vocals you know john always kind of had a rep, rep repetition type of thing style you know and again dating back to head first 
Um, and I'm sure it drove him crazy to hear that every time we did something, even dating back to Wrestling with Jesus, I think Flipside Magazine was like, the package is gorgeous, music's cool, you know, sounds like a, you know, but it sounds like a tool cover band or whatever. And this is like 1995. It is, I mean, is it bad to be compared to Maynard? Isn't Maynard one of the greatest singers of our generation? Probably. Um, so at the end of the day, I would hope he, he would look at it as a compliment. I, I at the time was kind of just like tired of hearing it, to be honest with you. Um, just because I thought John was more than that and was getting, you know, people were kind of, uh, limiting what he was, his ability was, uh, to be honest. That's why I thought, I thought John is, is very talented dude, um, and uh, I think uh, that may have affected him in the, for the long term. I could be totally wrong. I've never talked to the dude about it, to be honest. With you. <laughs> well, I definitely don't think the band sounds like Tool. That would be ridiculous. But definitely his vocals have that sound. Yeah. To say you were a Tool cover band would be pretty ridiculous, I think. And there are moments where it is eerie. John sounds like fucking Maynard. There's no, there's no denying that. That record came out 20 years ago this week, you know, um, which is mind blowing to think. So um, to be able to reach out to Mike or talk to him or pick his brain or talk about the Mandalorian or whatever it is, it's awesome. Um, and same thing with Jamie, like Jamie's still marketing and doing publicity and, and she's remarkable at it. And Mike's still signing bands and is May, arguably the biggest music geek and that's not an insult i've ever met um he knows he's an almanac of information and knowledge so after all that work and effort and time you put into the album you get an album that you're proud of yep. maybe not at the time you're saying you had some frustrations with it understandably so yeah. but definitely a solid product you get to put out the music video you go on tour with alien ant farm and hoobastank but the band ceases to exist not long after that so what led to the yeah um you know i'm still a little confused of what happened <laughs> um we had just did that tour and it went incredibly well for obvious reasons ant farm is you know this is like the precursor of them just really skyrocketing into stardom hoobastank doesn't even have a record out we're playing in between them every night sold out we're destroying you know so just to be clear it's hoobastank downer alien ant farm correct okay and um, every show is pure magic, you know, like just it reminded me or us of the hardcore days, like packed house. People are blown away after every show. People are coming up to us like, who the fuck are you guys? You are in suits like that. We ran with that. It just felt really good. And other bands we knew were blowing up and other bands from that world were blowing up. So it was like, oh, wow, this is wild. And Corn obviously just went off, you know, goes on to be like one of the biggest bands in rock music at that point deftones are right on their heels um you know there's a lot of fucking remarkable bands and roadrunners obviously has a lot of money on the table right you know they have slipknot and they have nickelback and they have spine shank and they have sepultura and they have soulfly and they have el nino and they have glass like you could go on and on and on so it's like you know i think john started feeling like oh man like we're never going to you know they're not going to give us the push that we need to finally reach that next level because we went on that tour and then we were supposed to go like oddly enough we 
started blowing up in Europe, we had caught wind. And I, again, and it was surreal. There was like a point where the video was like on MTV there and was like, like the only bands that were getting more MTV airplay was like Radiohead. And it was like, whoa, like what the hell? And like something came up where we were supposed to go on tour there and like someone connected us and Fear Factory, who I was a big fan of, Absolute fucking destroys. And yeah, I knew Dino loosely, very nice guy, you know, stapled LA music metal scene. And they asked the singer, some, someone, there's an interview, like, oh, we heard you're bringing over this band Downers. I don't, and he's like, like, I don't know what the context was, but he was like, we're not fucking, no one tells us who to fucking bring on tour or whatever. Um, and I think Roadrunner was trying to pull like a fast one because obviously the band was established and they were like, oh, we can just piggyback Downer and then this is just going to blow the fuck up over here. And so that got nixed really quickly. And I don't know if that was something else that affected John, but I was like, dude, that fucking sucks. Like, fuck, to go on tour with fucking Fear Factory in Europe. Like, oh my God, talk about dreams. So that got kind of fucked up. And then we ended up going and playing a showcase. This was the death certificate. We go out to New York and play a showcase for the label and we get there like three days early for some stupid reason and are like partying out of our minds for three <laughs> days and at this point we have another new lineup we have eddie nappy from handsome which is one of my favorite bands ever and he's playing bass for us and then we added a second guitar player which was uh this guy who was in a band called manual surrender uh in, this guy lance really nice guy and so we go back there and play like the worst show in the history of the band's existence in front of the label. And then I think El Nino played that night and they fucking laid it down. I think that was the night they actually got signed, ironically. And um, that did not bid well for us because, again, it was like they have all these chips on the table. And then El Nino's this other new band. And it was like, and Mike had signed just on Kill Switch Engage, which was another fucking phenomenal signing. And, you know, I, I really think John was getting the sense we're not going to get pushed. And I, he had to support his kid. And I think he, at the time, he was going out in a serious relationship. And I just think John lost really all interest. He was in an interview a few weeks later, like they're talking to him. And, he said something about Slipknot. I don't know exactly what, but it wasn't uh, very good. He said something about, you know, oh, they only care about bands that wear masks or something absolutely ridiculous. Labels, furious, um, because obviously Jamie and Maria are setting up these interviews and they're on the other line or on hold or talking to the people we're, we're doing the press with and... Um, and then they came back to us and were like, you know, what the fuck is that all about? Which I, I totally understand. And it didn't really make any sense because, A, that first Slipknot record was totally game-changing, obviously. I think, you know, obviously the label's all eyes on Slipknot for album number two. And I just get the sense John was kind of just waving the surrender flag and kind of self-destructing, so to speak. And so the management's like, what do you guys want to do? And I was like, what, do, what can we do? You know, and they're like, you should possibly get another singer or whatever. Like, this guy just doesn't seem into it. And I was like, I can't do that to John. 
you know, I was just like, can't do like been doing this for a decade with John. Like we just made this record and it was fucking pulling teeth. And um, at that point, it just kind of, you know, John was like, I'm tired of driving to LA and doing all this shit. And they're not going to, you know, do what all the things they promised to do for us. And it was just like, all right. I ended up ironically going and managing Fishbone shortly after that with a guy who was El Nino's tour manager and co-manager. So um, I didn't fall out of the music universe quite yet at that point. And we did that for a minute. And that was probably even a weirder and stranger experience um, just because um, you're managing five grown adult dudes that have like multiple kids with multiple women and moms are calling us and grandmas are calling us <laughs> and kids are calling us at all hours of the night. It, it was fascinating and phenomenal. And I was, I think one of the first cassettes I ever bought myself at Licorice Pizza was the Fishbone original uh, album. So to work with them was, was absolutely incredible. And at that point, I was just like, you know what? I need to get back into the business side. I don't want to work. I want I want to help blow up bands or help bands do good things, but I don't want to be on the musician side of it. 20 years later, mm-hmm. you're telling me all, we've just gone through the whole lifespan of this record, the trials and tribulations, the, the member changes, the producer changes, all of this. What is something that you think you personally could have done differently to make it better for you? Huh. Um, you know, I think w- at the time there was a lot of pressure, uh, leading up to the signing, there wasn't all this pressure. Then we were signed and it's like, Oh, Whoa, we need to make a single or we need to make sure we make some songs that, um, they can put on the radio. Cause that was really kind of the, the selling. I, I, I would imagine that was, Mike's selling point, they had sold them on us by on that aspect. So there was a pressure to go, we need, you know, that was something the previous seven or eight years of the band. I was like, can we get on the radio? <laughs> you know, like so um to now be looked at as oh, we need to get something on the radio, that was you know, some pressure. But at the same time, we did hear other bands from that world, as you know, blowing up on the radio and a band like Corns being played on the radio, that was bizarre. Um, I remember just like, okay, well, we need to play it, be on the radio. And that's what was on the radio. And it was like, well, we need to kind of have, I guess, be, have more of those type of elements, uh, which, uh, you know, I don't know if it's embarrassing to say or not, but it's like, we need to kind of emulate some of that. We can't be, hey, cop, put your gun away or these other things on wrestling with Jesus that are touching on some places that the radio is not going to let us, you know, to, to give us that ability to, to, to take that route. So I almost feel like we had to play it safe. Well, I know that there's a lot of things that you would do differently, but what is something that you're most proud of about the record? And what is something that you like about it more than wrestling with Jesus? I like it more in the sense of, I feel like, it pushed me more as a musician wrestling with Jesus was just us being furious and kind of putting stuff together and uh, being, um, you know, it, ca- it captured us fresh off of that earth crisis tour. 
And we had a lot of momentum and anger and passion at that time. But I do think uh, the Roadrunner record, you know, we're a much tighter band, even though it was such a weird process of making the record. It's not like Tracy did the drums and then we chopped them up and had to redo the songs. The songs were written, right? It's not perfect, but I do like the perfection aspect of it's a lot. It's us being more of a locomotive, so to speak, and it's being it, the precision of it. I'm proud of it in the sense that we got it done, you know, because there was a lot of moments where it was like, you know, especially early on where I was like, wow, this isn't going to happen. What a disaster. And for me, it was devastating because I had just spent the last seven or eight years of my life eating, breathing, drinking the band, you know, so to have actually had a physical copy in my hand and go, I, we got this record done and it came out. And even if it's five people that love it, you know, to hear that from somebody, that's fucking remarkable. I know how important music is for me outside of my kid and a few other like art. There's really nothing more important to me than putting on a record and listening to it from beginning to end. So somebody going, this is a perfect record or one of my favorite records. That's mind blowing to me to have been able to participate in something like that. Thanks to Aaron for taking us on that crazy ride. He's a fascinating guy who has worked hard his whole life to be a part of what he loves. And if you love this Downer album, stay tuned to their Instagram at The Sound of Disappointment for updates on a 20th anniversary vinyl release this year with original art direction and new mixes. And if you want to keep mixing it up with this show, go on Apple and leave a five-star review. Hit up patreon.com slash meetmeetpod with a $5 pledge and join me every week for a brand new episode. Until then, my name is Ryan Rainbow. This is Meet Meet, and yes, that's the best I could come up with. Bye!